Greetings, everyone. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Earlier this summer, I had the honor of hosting a live one-hour session at the ITIC Podcast Festival, organized by our friends at the Woman at Warp podcast. Now, in case you don't know, ITIC, I-D-I-C, stands for infinite diversity in infinite combinations and is a precept of Vulcan philosophy. So naturally, the Idic Podcast Festival's theme was celebrating intersectional diversity within the Trek fandom. For my session, I gathered a diverse group of scientist Trekkies to speak about the importance of diversity, both in their real-life scientific pursuits and in the fictional pursuit of science as depicted in Star Trek. Today, we are going to listen to a recording of that panel discussion. On this panel that you're about to hear, three of my four guests are brand new to Strange New Worlds. I purposefully tried to approach people that I'd never had on the show before, and because of that, I actually had no idea if they'd even agree to do this panel. After all, they're all super important and busy people. And sadly, spending precious time on increasing diversity, much less talking about Star Trek and diversity, is not really rewarded in academia's incentive structure. So it was already a huge win for me that they all said yes to being on this show. Each and every enthusiastic reply that I got to my inquiries asking if these folks would be willing to be on a panel about Star Trek and science and diversity filled me with hope. I also purposefully approached people of higher standing than me in academia because I wanted to highlight to the audience and honestly, to remind myself that yes, you can make it in science if you're a member of a marginalized community. That yes, there exist people who look like you, pushing the boundaries of knowledge for all humankind. So, to that end, we will spend some time getting to know how each of these scientists' work advances our knowledge of the cosmos in the present day, just like we would on a regular episode of Strange New Worlds. But then we are going to switch gears and talk about why representation matters in science, how Star Trek portrays a scientific future that is welcoming and inclusive to people of all backgrounds. And finally, we're going to learn about some ongoing efforts to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion in science. Engage. Welcome one and all to this live episode of Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. It's an honor to be the finale of the 2021 IDIC Podcast Festival, brought to you by the wonderful people at the Woman at Warp podcast, 
Before we do anything else tonight, let us all give a big round of applause to the Woman at Warp crew for all that they've done putting on this fantastic festival. Yeah! I'm Mike Wong, the host of Strange New Worlds. I'm a planetary scientist and an astrobiologist at the University of Washington in Seattle. Now, for those of you who are new to Strange New Worlds, this is a show about the intersection between science and Star Trek. And I started this podcast four years ago as a graduate student at Caltech with my good friend Elise Cutts, who is now studying geobiology at MIT. Four years ago was around the time that Star Trek Discovery was coming out, and I was listening to all sorts of other great Star Trek podcasts and loving their commentaries about the characters and the story arcs and the props and the costumes, but I was a little bit frustrated that nobody was talking about the beautiful science that was being depicted in the show, from forming binary stars to horizontal gene transfer. And I thought, you know what, if nobody else is going to talk about this, maybe I will. And since then, we've had numerous experts beam aboard Strange New Worlds to talk about the science fact behind the science fiction. And we've also had a few Trek folks here, too, actors like Anthony Rapp and Rekha Sharma, writers like Una McCormick and John Jackson Miller, and, of course, the actual Star Trek universe science consultants, Dr. Aaron McDonald and Professor Mohammed Noor. Today, I am very excited to focus on the incredibly important issue of diversity in STEM and in Star Trek. And with me are four scientists whom I greatly admire as researchers and as human beings. Tonight's plan is, number one, to get to know them a little bit, two, to learn about how their work advances our knowledge of the cosmos, and three, talk about diversity equity, inclusion, and accessibility as it pertains to the worlds of science and Star Trek. And finally, if there's time, we'll be taking your questions, which you can submit through the chat functions on YouTube and Facebook Live. So our first panelist is someone whom I've been dying to get on Strange New Worlds for years, but due to her busy schedule, we haven't been able to make it happen until tonight. She's the deputy science lead at the NASA Exoplanet Archive and a research scientist at the NASA Exoplanet Science Institute. Please give a warm welcome to Dr. Jesse Christensen. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Our next panelist is someone I invited to give a UW astrobiology colloquium this past spring. And during her virtual visit to UW, I learned that she is a huge Star Trek fan, particularly of Star Trek Voyager. She's a professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at the University of California, Santa Cruz, studying cosmochemistry, asteroids, meteorites, and solar system formation. Please welcome Professor Miriam Tellis. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. I was introduced to our next panelist by our mutual friend, Dr. Peter Gao, some six or seven years ago at one of the annual planetary science conferences. Since then, I've been following her work very closely because she is a pioneer in one of the most thrilling scientific fields out there, exoplanet astrobiology. Dr. Tiffany Kataria, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Mike. Good to see everyone and happy to talk with you all. 
And finally, the person who texted me about a month ago <laughs> saying, Mike, you should really submit a proposal to the Idic Podcast Festival. And the only one of tonight's guests who is a veteran of Strange New Worlds. He's a planetary geophysicist and a science illustrator from Pasadena, California, who studies rocky and icy worlds across the solar system. It's Dr. James Tuttle Keen. Hi, I'm excited to be here. I'm so glad, Mike, you did it. I'm happy to be now part of the Women at Warp crew, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Always with the good swag. Okay. So let's get to know our panelists a little bit more today. You know, we all come from different backgrounds and we all come to Star Trek at different times in our lives from different places for different reasons. And I discovered Trek because my dad was a big fan of the original series and I grew up in the 1990s consuming The Next Generation, DS9 and Voyager and sharing those shows with my friends and family. Everyone, what was your first contact with Star Trek? Maybe Jesse, we'll start with you. So I came to Star Trek late, uh, late in my nerddom. In fact, my now husband was doing like a big rewatch in 2011 and 2012 while we were engaged. Uh, so the real, my true first engagement with it was one of the wedding tables at our wedding reception was the Enterprise. Uh, all of the wedding tables were named after science fiction spaceships, basically. So one of them was the Enterprise. And then after we were married, I was like, all right, I need to, I need to make this legit. And I started watching Star Trek. So I came to it as a, a grown-up adult. Um, which has definitely colored my my experience with it. But yes, that's when I, only in the last decade have I discovered Star Trek. That's amazing. Um, I hope it's okay if I steal that uh, for any potential future weddings that I may have. <laughs> oh yeah, I had a, I had a whole armada. <laughs> awesome. Um, Miriam, what was your first introduction to Star Trek? My first introduction was probably network TV as a child. We didn't have cable, so I watched whatever was on television and there was a lot of Star Trek Voyager and I remembered that but I didn't really become a big fan of it until graduate school when uh, Star Trek was on Netflix and all of the shows were on Netflix and I basically you know binge watch those shows while doing data processing for my PhD project. <laughs> so, lots of Star Trek and I loved that they were all on Netflix so I could follow it more easily than when it was on TV long time ago, when you have to wait like, you know, a week for the next show. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. So Star Trek and science right there, definitely colliding head on in Miriam's PhD thesis. And uh, Tiffany, what was your first contact to Star Trek? Yeah, thanks, Mike. First, I just wanted to acknowledge that was an excellent pun, your first contact with the Star Trek, <laughs> so I just wanted to acknowledge that. Um, so my story is actually, I think, similar to yours, Mike, in that it was a kind of osmosis through another family member. In this case, it was my older sister. Um, so she's seven years older than me. So she was somewhat of a you know generation or so ahead in terms of Star Trek. And so her entry point was, and therefore my entry point was uh, Next Generation. And so she and her teens was really, really into um, Next Generation. She went to a couple of cons herself. She got to the point where, you know, 30 seconds of any episode that was on TV, she was able to immediately identify the episode <laughs> and this, you know, the season, the episode. Um, and so for me, it was kind of always around, I guess, in that sense, you know, growing up. Um, and so it was certainly valuable to see. And, you know, one thing I'll talk about probably in other questions is, you know, being exposed to females doing science, right? And so I think that was valuable for me in my career. But, uh, you know, in terms of my own exposure, my own kind of immersion in, in Star Trek didn't happen, yeah, until later years. I mean, Next Generation when I was a kid, but, you know, I've, I really got into 
disco and all that it has to offer. Uh, you've already mentioned it. So, um, so yeah, it's been around for a while, but uh, I'll also just mention um, an anecdote of, you know, running around as a kid wearing, you know, those 90s headbands around my eyes, pretending I was 40 <laughs> to forge. So, so yeah, <laughs> it's been around mm -hmm. a while for me. Definitely did that too. And James, last but not least. Just like you, I, I think it was mostly through my family, through my parents who watched both the original series back when it was airing. And as TNG was airing when I was a little kid, I remember recording it on VHS. I have so many episodes piled up somewhere in my old childhood house and also the original series movies, like The Wrath of Khan, where I purposely didn't record the bit with the earworm. <laughs> scary. Um, and so I, I started in the pre-Netflix era, just I would binge all those VHS tapes and that sort of spiraled down the road of checking out Star Trek books at the local library and buying toys. And it, it just became everything. So that, that was sort of my uh, route into the rabbit hole that is Star Trek. <laughs> awesome. So now time for a fun question. You're all obviously professional scientists, and you're at a career stage just ahead of my own. I'm a postdoc, so I'm doing these awkward two to three year gigs. Uh, but you all have permanent jobs, and you may even have the power to hire new scientists, which is a power that I've never had in my life before. If you could hire one person from the Star Trek universe to join your scientific team, who would it be? and why. And let's go in reverse order now. So we'll start with James. Yeah, this is a great question. And I bounce around because all the people I would want to hire, I feel like I would offer the job and then they would get like picked up by NASA. <laughs> so like I would want to hire Michael Burnham, the like awesome scientist and like really good leader. But then I'm sure Lori Glaze, the director of planetary science at NASA would just steal her away from me. <laughs> so that would be probably my dream hire right now. But I'll make do with, I guess, and maybe an ensign somewhere. Maybe a, a Wesley Crusher will come work for me for a little bit. <laughs> Disappears into the into another dimension. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, Tiffany, who would you hire? Uh, yeah, I guess I hadn't thought about seniority as James was describing, but you know, in a perfect world, I'd hire Dr. Beverly Crusher. That probably wouldn't surprise you. But, uh, you know, I really admired her, her toughness, her ability to juggle parent, looking back on it now, you know, juggling parenting and sparring with, you know, all the people that she had to, you know, work with. I, I thought she was a nice counterpoint to Picard and yeah, certainly would want her on my team. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. More Beverly. Miriam, what about you? I agree. This question was too difficult. I'm a Voyager <laughs> person, so I'm just going to stick with Voyager. That's what I know. So I have, I've actually had to hire people since being a professor, and it's really tough. But I agree. Anyone good, there's going to be a lot of competition for that person. But here are my two choices. There was a tie. I thought about this way too long. There was a tie between Captain Janeway and Harry Kim. And um, maybe one of those I'd be able to uh, higher. I, I think <laughs> basically I was looking for someone smart and motivated and um, someone that works really well with others and someone that's resourceful. And I, and I came up with those two. Yeah. A lot of motivation Probably. between those two. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, and Jesse. Uh, I'm really enjoying that you guys had this whole suspension of belief problem with hiring an imaginary character from a TV <laughs> show. Uh, that really tickles me. Um, you know, I've watched original series and I've watched Next Generation, so that's that's my sort of limited experience. But uh, I went with Leonard McCoy because Bones McCoy, uh, a bunch of experience that I don't have and would be great to have. 
but also particularly like as someone who hires people now, he's such a glue in the team. Like, you know, he balances, balances the rest of the people. He can like fight off the cold logic. He can fight off the roof. Let's do this. And he can be like, no, here's, come on, bring it in. Uh, and that's what a team needs. Uh, so I liked his mix of experience and ability to like get people to work together who need to work together. That's what I really need uh, when I'm hiring people. Oh, that's a really good answer. Yeah. Thinking also about the social aspect of a scientific yeah, team. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's something that, you know, as you hire more and more people and you see how people work together in a team, you start to realize how important that is. Like, it's not just, I need this genius who can do this. It's like, oh, I need someone who can actually work with other people. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, let's now turn to your scientific pursuits. You know, I asked each of you to be on Strange New Worlds in part because your research resonates with some very famous Star Trek phraseology to explore strange new worlds and seek out new life. So Miriam, let's begin with you. You study how planetary systems form. In particular, you study asteroids and meteorites, the primitive building blocks of worlds like our own. And I know that you and your students have been baking meteorites in an oven recently. And to a lot of people, I'm sure that sounds like a really odd thing to do to a rock that came from space. So help me connect the dots here between your experiments and our understanding of our place in the universe. Yeah. So as Mike said, one of the projects we're working on are trying to understand what atmospheres were made up of, planets' atmospheres were made up of at the very beginning when they just formed. And so, so planets like the Earth, rocky planets. And so the approach we're using is heating meteorites in a furnace and measuring the gases that are released. And we do this under different conditions that should be relevant to early Earth and early rocky planets. And the reason why meteorites are perfect for this is because they're remnants of the material that went into building planets in our solar system. So they give us, they allow us to, to understand how the building blocks relate to the early atmosphere composition. So in the lab, we take our meteorites and we crush them and we powder them and then we put them in the furnace and we monitor the gases using an instrument called a mass spectrometer. So walk us through, maybe just giving us a, an imaginary tour of your lab and your experimental setup, you know? So, you know, if you're baking meteorites, you said you had to crush them and then you're using a mass spectrometer. For those of us who don't know what that is, can you explain how that produces the information that we need to really understand the atmospheres of early planets? So basically you go in the lab we have two labs. One lab is where we prepare our samples. So we do all the crushing, the uh, powdering with a mortar and pestle. If you've ever, if you like cooking, sometimes you use it in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And um, then we sieve it to get the perfect grain sizes that we're looking for. And then we take that sample to another lab. And in that lab, there's a lot of different things in the lab. And our <laughs> instrument is in one corner of it. So there's all these machines and these were, you know, the sounds that these machines make, beeping and stuff, kind of like your typical stereotypical lab, you know. And, <laughs> and in our corner, we have this uh, furnace. It's about the size of, I would say, a microwave. And there's a tube in it. And the sample goes on a little a tiny dish. You could kind of think of it like a tiny cup that you put inside of that tube. And then you seal it all off. That tube is actually connected by another tube to the mass spectrometer. And so when you're heating up the sample, the gases 
come you know out of the sample from the minerals and the that's in your the rock and then the gases go out and they go to this mass spectrometer they hit the detector there's like a detector on the mass spectrometer that can measure the uh, mass the weight of the gas that's hitting it and then from that it gets what actually is the composition of that gas because the the composition depends on the weight Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's how we get at what kind of gases are being released from the meteorite and what kind of um, gases might we expect from an early planet. That is super, super fascinating. Listening to that makes me wish that in Star Trek, they showed a little bit more lab work because it sounds like a lot of fun. I don't do very much lab work and, you know, <laughs> I, I, I wish I could now. <laughs> uh, James. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, James, let's turn to you. Um, You study the geophysics of planetary bodies from the moon to Pluto and everything in between. Recently, you worked on a mission concept for a spacecraft that would study Jupiter's moon Io. Could you tell us what's so cool about Io? Why would you want to go and study that moon? Besides the fact that, of course, you want to look for a hidden Section 31 shipyard there, as in Into Darkness. (laughs) Yeah, this will be the one time Into Darkness probably gets referenced in this hour. Um, But yeah, so Io is, I have my little globe of Io here. Io is a moon of Jupiter. It's about the size of the Earth's moon. And it's the most volcanically active world in the solar system. More volcanically active than the Earth, even by an order of magnitude. And that gives it this funky yellow, orange, pizza-like color. But yeah, so we wanna go to Io and really understand what's going on on the inside because going to worlds that are super volcanically active like like Io can tell you something about how the early Earth formed. Um, The Earth went through a phase early in its history called a a magma ocean phase where literally the, the entire surface was molten rock. And you can't study those anywhere on Earth today or any other body except Io. If you go there, you can see things that were happening on Earth four or five billion years ago. And then the other thing that's really interesting on Io is even though it's a ball of rock right now and there's almost certainly no life on Io, the same thing that's heating Io and giving you those lava lakes and volcanic eruptions are the same things that are powering neighboring moons like Europa, and other moons in the solar system like Enceladus and Titan, where we think there might be life today. And so sometimes in science, you want to study your end members. And Io is an end member of this process called tidal heating. And so if you go here to this uninhabitable world, you might learn something about how the habitable worlds actually work. But yeah, so I, I'm always enamored with Io. I was very pleased when it showed up in Into Darkness, although I was shooting so much dust and gas into the environment. The vengeance would have been like painted yellow and orange, (laughs) which may not be as menacing. So that's really good to know. Uh, So the mission proposal that you were working on reached the final four of NASA's most recent call for discovery class mission concepts. But alas, it wasn't chosen. You know, I guess that most of our audience members aren't familiar with the sweat and blood and tears that go into trying to launch a new interplanetary spacecraft. James, could you just give us a little glimpse into what that process is like? Yeah, it is It is very intense. And you'll notice other people in this room have also nodded along because many of us have been involved in these competitions, either for missions or for getting funding to fund lab equipment or do research on, on a basic level. The way a lot of planetary science and astronomy works at NASA and at the National Science Foundation 
is that it's competitive. You have to write a proposal to NASA to say, I want to do something, be it send a mission to IO or build a lab, and here's why you need to do it. And then you need to provide a budget and all those things. It's actually, there is a Star Trek analog here, which I just realized, and that's in The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> uh, in The Wrath of Khan, you see Carol Marcus's recording of here's the Genesis project and why it's so important and so transformative. Project Genesis, a proposal to the Federation. What exactly is Genesis? Well, put simply, Genesis is life from lifelessness. It is a process whereby molecular structure is reorganized at the subatomic level. In That's not terribly unlike what a NASA proposal is. She didn't have to present budgets because money doesn't exist. Which would <laughs> but that's sort of how NASA works. And it's it, it's good because it, it produces a lot of creative ideas because people are competing with one another. But it does lead to sometimes sad endings like your mission not getting selected. But instead, at the same time, while I'm sad we're not going to Io, I'm really excited because the missions that were selected were two missions to Venus, another probably volcanically active world. And so even though sometimes you lose... The whole community tends to win on average, or at least I hope so. And it's part of the game that we play right now at NASA. Oh, that's a really great perspective to have. And um, what a great Star Trek connection, too, to Wrath of Khan. Jesse, you're in the business of finding and characterizing exoplanets, strange new worlds beyond our solar system. I know that exoplanetary science is an extraordinarily fast-moving field because we're discovering exoplanets left and right. So how exactly are we finding so many exoplanets given that we don't even have warp drive yet? <laughs> Yes, I'd love to just warp to the nearest star systems and just look around. Um, and it's only been in the last few decades that we've been able to find planets. The way we do it is indirectly. So almost all of the planets that we found, we found by looking at the star that the planet orbits and looking for some effect on the star. So the planet is either tugging on the star, so the star moves, or it's changing the pulsation of the light towards us and we see pulsations change. Or if it's lined up just right, it blocks some of the light from the star. So almost all of the over 4,000 planets that we found around other stars so far have been found indirectly. Now, NASA has been working on, you know, these big, huge concepts for in the future, how we might actually be able to take pictures of these things and like look at them in more detail and look at their atmospheres and their compositions and stuff. But most of the planets right now aren't found like that. We don't get to have this, you know, the beautiful screen on the bridge being like, oh, here's this lovely planet. Here's every detail you want to know about it right here. <laughs> Unfortunately, no, it's a lot harder work than that. You know, I think exoplanetary science is super exciting because it's also discovering and revealing all sorts of different kinds of planets out there, planets that we don't see in our own solar system. Can you tell us about maybe one or two of your favorite of those strange new worlds, worlds that are just so weird that they might even appear in a Star Trek episode one day? <laughs> I want to tell you about two systems. One is very weird. Uh, one is, and I'm just going to start off and say, Astronomers give planets garbage names, and I'm very sorry. I wish they all had cool Star Trek names. They all have garbage names. So this one is HD 189733B. Again, all I can say is I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's a gas giant like Jupiter that orbits its star in just a few days. So, you know, it takes us 365 days to go around. This is a Jupiter-sized planet that's so close to its star, it goes around in just a few days. That means the atmosphere is heated up to thousands of degrees. 
And in fact, one of the things we found with HD1 at 9733B is that atmosphere has basically liquid glass raining sideways constantly in the atmosphere of this planet. It's just so wild. So this is like one of the, we call them hot Jupiters because we have no imagination and we can't name things. But this is a whole new class of planets we found that are gas giants right next to the star. So that's like just a strange world that we discovered that was mostly unexpected. But now we found a bunch of them and it's like, oh, this is a whole type of thing that we need to work out how it formed. The second system I want to tell you about is 40 Eridani. So the very, 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 very Star Trek nerds out there probably heard 40 Eridani and went, why do I know that? So my day job, I work at the NASA Exoplanet Archive and I archive all of the planets that we find and all of their details. And in particular, one of the things I archive is all of their names. So almost every bright star in the sky has many names because so many different people have cataloged it in various ways and times and colors. So I have to put in these aliases, we call them. So I'm, I'm seeing there, there's this new planet, I'm typing in all the aliases. And one of the aliases is 40 Eridani. And I'm like, why do I know this? What is this? And I'd love to say that it sprang into my head, fully formed what it was, but I actually went and Googled. I was like, why do I know 40 Eridani? Uh, that's Vulcan. Spock's homeworld orbits 40 Eridani, eh? And so we, have we found a planet in real life around the star that in Star Trek has Vulcan around it. And that's just wild to me. Uh, so I went through this exercise of going through all of the Star Trek planets up to Star Trek Discovery to see how many of them had real counterparts. And there's seven. The seven wow. planets that exist in Star Trek that also exist in real life around real stars. That's so cool. That's, That's amazing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> can't wait for warp drive, right? <laughs> so we can Absolutely. Go and, yes, please. Yeah, visit now. all of them. <laughs> well, thanks for all your hard work finding these planets. Um, Tiffany, let's turn to you. You're also an exoplanet scientist, but your current project is much more directly related to how we are going to detect the fingerprints of life on these faraway worlds that Jesse and her colleagues are finding. Essentially, you're looking for ways to scan for biosignatures and and scanning for bioscience is a really routine activity in Star Trek, but in the here and now, it's a really difficult task. Tiffany, how does your research propel us towards a greater understanding of how to search for life in the universe? Yeah, uh, it's an answer. It's a question that can be taken in many different uh, ways. You know, there's so many different pathways that one can think of to try and understand life on other planets, and I think that. The field of astrobiology is a real clear demonstration of collaboration and innovation being key for advancing our understanding. So um, in my case, in my research, um, I, so I'm a, I, I usually use theoretical models to understand the atmospheres of exoplanets, atmospheres and you know, potentially their surfaces if they're there. But the work that I'm doing in astrobiology is working with laboratory astrophysicists, like the kind of work that Miriam does, but in a different avenue. Um, so these astrobiologists, these uh, laboratory astrobiologists study microbes and study uh, columns from the deep ocean vents in uh, on Earth's ocean and understand the chemistry that takes place in these environments. And so you can look at that in isolation and say, okay, that's what that looks like on Earth. Uh, and think about the fact that these are, you know, very minute, very small scale surface processes that make take place. But the reality of what when we're looking for biosignatures, biosigns and exoplanets that might be potentially habitable is that you're going to be looking at, a, you know, tiny dots, get global information. You can't really see, you know, surface features, land and ocean. So you really have to take all of the information globally together to try and 
understand, you know, is there life there? And so my goal is to learn from the laboratory astrobiologists, learn from the theoretical modelers and think in summation, you know, in a global sense, you know, what signatures might be detectable from remote telescopes like the ones that Jesse was describing. And so um, in a kind of direct pathway using laboratory measurements of microbes grown in the lab. So thinking about very simplistic microbes that might emit things like methane, things like carbon dioxide, you know, what are the gas volumes that these microbes, the simplest form of life emits, you know, in what volume are they emitted? And then in what volume could they interact with the chemistry in the atmosphere to then be detectable as a signature of life? As I'm describing it, you, you can probably get the sense that that's complicated, right? There are many different pathways chemically that can take, you know, microbes on the surface and produce any sort of chemistries. This is a big open question, you know, are there typically called biotic or abiotic pathways that you might detect um, these signatures. So water, for example, is a, is a molecule that we think of on Earth when it comes to life, but water can be formed both biotically and abiotically in an atmosphere. And so trying to narrow those pathways to rule out different scenarios is what, uh, you know, my research in astrobiology is thinking about. Incredible. Tiffany, just real quick, you know, when you see somebody on Star Trek whip out a tricorder and scan for biosignatures, what do you imagine is actually happening from a technical standpoint? <laughs> I'd like to think that they have a lot more complex computational speeds than we do. <laughs> and so, you know, in my mind, they're looking at the whole of the planet, looking at the chemistry that's there and running all these detailed calculations, um, theoretically, that I was just describing, run a, running a bunch of different quantum chemical calculations to understand, okay, what are the most stable uh, stable molecules on the surface in the atmosphere and do they really uh, tie back to life? So I'm thinking global properties, but also very specific computer simulations that they have the capability of running in their tricorders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I wish I had a tricorder yeah, with me right, right now. Right, yeah. I know, seriously. <laughs> well, thank you for working on a real live tricorder for us or the sure. prototype of one. Um, but, first, Mike, would you rather have warp drive or a tricorder? Oh, no. Um, just off the top of my head, probably warp drive. Yeah, I don't think I would need a tricorder to just soak in the awe of those worlds up close. Um, but, uh, you know, why not both? <laughs> Great question. Th thank you, Jesse. Um, you know, we've spent about half an hour together now, and I think it's time to switch gears into diversity in science and in Star Trek as well. Uh, you know, STEM fields in general have a really long way to go with regard to diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. And this is especially true in the fields that we come from, astronomy, planetary science, and the geosciences, which are historically dominated by by cis straight white men. And just a few numbers, because we like numbers here uh, on Strange New Worlds to illustrate this. Um, a recent study found that racial diversity has not improved in the geosciences over the past four decades, with only 3.8%, 3.8% of tenure-track faculty positions held by people of color. Another study surveyed astronomers and planetary scientists and found that 40% of women of color reported feeling unsafe in the workplace as a result of their gender or sex, and 28% of women of color reported feeling unsafe as a result of their race. This is unsafe in your workplace. Imagine going to your workplace and feeling unsafe. And finally, a third study found that people from underrepresented groups 
in STEM face more bias and harassment during the peer review process. And these are just a few examples of how issues in diversity and inclusion can cause tremendous harm to real life scientific careers. And this is a problem that collectively we need to face in order to get to a better future, dare I say, the Star Trek future. So let's just begin with everyone's general thoughts on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in the STEM fields. Would anybody like to share another specific example of why increasing diversity, inclusion, equity, and accessibility is important for scientific progress? If I could just go first, my just to talk directly to the stats you just um, uh, quoted, um, I just wanted to, for the audience out there who may think, you know, feeling unsafe in a workplace may mean extreme conditions, right? May mean, you know, harassment or, you know, very physical, <laughs> you know, you, your mind can go to extreme places. And I guess I, I wanted to just say that, you know, feeling unsafe in a workplace can take many different forms, right? It can really start small, um, speaking personally, you know, environments where, uh, you know, ideas that I have or results that I have may be, you know, not as held in high high regard as, say, someone else, maybe a cis uh, white man, you know, that's maybe done the same work. And so those microaggressions, you know, as they're often called, can really amount to, you know, doubt in your own ability as a scientist. So, so it's really, you know, it can be big things, right? And those are obviously terrible, but it can be a lot of these small things that really um, pile on to themselves to really, uh, you know, lead to uh, lack of confidence in the field. And that's certainly been, you know, an experience that I've gone through. Yeah, thanks for sharing, Tiffany. And that is a great distinction between some of the more flagrant issues or instances of harassment and just the sort of slow pileup of all of these different microaggressions, as you said, that can really take a daily wear and tear on people. Absolutely. Mike, I'm happy to jump in with, an, you know, this is my opinion, but um, science is a search for something. It's a search for answers. And there are so many different ways to get at answers. There's so many different approaches you can take. There's so many different things you can try. And one of the things we see in science is that if you have your whole team comes from the same background, the same education, you know, it's a bunch of Princeton educated people, they've all been given the same tools to answer the problem. So they might do a great job and answer the problem, but they might not they might not do it. Uh, they might not do it as effectively or as robustly or as quickly as a group of people that comes with a bunch of different tools, right? Everyone brings their own toolbox and they're like, wait, I think I have something that fits. And so building diverse teams is, you know, something, it's such a buzzword. I say that and I almost want to, you know, slap myself, building diverse teams. But it's so important to have that all of these different backgrounds and lived experiences and ideas to come together and work together as a team. Like apparently my whole thing, this thing is going to be teams. Um, but you know, science, there's this whole history that science is this like lone genius on their own somewhere solving the mysteries of science and almost always the lone genius is a white dude. And that's not how science is done. Uh, and, you know, these days it's even less how science is done. The lone geniuses have their tails like made bigger and bigger over time. So now you look back and you think a hundred years ago, the only way people did science was one white dude sitting in a room being like, wait. And it's, a, not how science has always been done. Uh, it just feels like that's how science has always been done because those are the stories that persist, the power of stories. Uh, and B, it's not how science is done now. So one is that we have to get rid of this like lone genius scientist myth. And another is that the more diverse teams get at answers faster and better. 
and more creatively you be reading people sorry and, to say. More, and more creatively you know yes, innovation exactly. and creation yeah creativity are important in diverse teams yes so diverse teams are important in science for a lot of reasons Excellent. Yes, thank you for sharing. Thank you for dispelling that lone genius myth, which I feel like we all go through school hearing about and maybe getting ingrained in ourselves of how science is done. But you're absolutely right, Jesse. I will I will die on that teamwork hill with you. Right. That it, it... <laughs> Can I add one more point? Sorry. Yes. Um, the one extra thing I want to say is we shouldn't just have diverse teams because it makes science better. We should have diverse teams because no one should be shut out of science. Like I don't want to, I don't want people to come away with the opinion that I only care about good science. We should have diverse teams because no one should be shut out of science. Also, it makes science better. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I would, I would add that it helps with science communication because I can discuss planetary science with my community, which is underrepresented in the field, and. I get questions from people all the time, things that they don't have anyone, they don't have a scientist in their neighborhood to ask the questions to, you know? So I think it's really important, especially nowadays with the current sentiment towards science and scientists. And you could see even with like the current, um, current events, pandemic and all, how important it is to be able for science to be able to reach every community. Absolutely, yes. And, and for all those communities to see also the possibility of themselves within science uh, and to be, to be reached in that manner. You know, I think it's fair to say that everyone on this panel identifies with at least one historically marginalized group in STEM. And so if you feel willing to share, what strategies or resources have you used to overcome diversity and inclusion issues and challenges in your field? Or what actions have you seen that have made a positive impact on a sense of belonging for people from diverse backgrounds in science? I'll jump in. So... I think what the, the, the key word in there that you said, at least that resonated to me, was belonging. So I'm a cisgendered white male. I'm also gay. And I went through grad school and undergrad largely closeted. And I think what really transformed myself was finding community, finding groups of people in your field and beyond that you can talk to and learn from. I, when I went into grad school, I knew of no queer scientists. I just didn't. Maybe I needed to get on Twitter earlier or something. <laughs> but the thing that made all the more change and like really helped me both as a person and a scientist was to find community, to find groups like there's a queer and planetary science group that they have regular meetings at, at every scientific conference that we go to and being able to build those personal connections. So, you know, you know, I'm not the only queer person in science. There have been queer people in planetary science for decades, centuries, since the dawn of science. And you can really grow and draw on that sense of community. And it's exciting to now be, feel part of it and not alone. That's really wonderful. Thank you for sharing, James. I'll just, I'll jump in and reinforce some of what James said about, you know, just finding a support system, finding a network of people that, you know, may relate to you on some levels. Um, James and I actually went to grad school together, so we've known each other a very long. I, I'd like to think we formed our own support network <laughs> um, through grad school, which is a, you know, really tough time in general and, and really 
gets at your psyche and your your own um, perception of self and your self-worth. Um, and so I think having a, a community of folks who understand what you're going through and at least empathize with your experience. You know, no one, uh, you know, I don't think there were um, other Asian women that I, there were a couple of Asian women that I can think of, but not, you know, half Filipino, half Indian like myself, <laughs> you know, women in my program, but at least empathizing with the experience that, uh, you know, I went through and, and, you know, working together to try and improve the community, but just really, um, you know, powering through it together. There were many instances in my experience in grad school where I could have just, you know, threw in the towel and said, you know, this is too much, or I can't do this, or, you know, I'm just going to do some other thing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, having those people there to really be your cheerleaders um, and be your, um, the people that remind you of why you're there in the first place, you know, they, the, that's, they, they did pick you for a reason. They hired you for this job for a reason, um, I think is so critical. Yeah, I definitely went through many of those moments as well in grad school, wondering, is this really the right track for me? Maybe I should just leave and do something else. And it was really that network that, that gave me that sense of belonging, as you and James have been talking about. Uh, Miriam, I saw you unmuted yourself. Oh, yeah. So um, I'm Black. I'm uh, the child of immigrants. And so those are the two groups like, I identify with. And basically, you know, undergrad, grad school, even now, I'm like the only Black person in the geology department. And one of the ways that, one of the things that really helped me is I kind of like, um, I kind of play mind games with myself. I imagine things that are not, that I don't see. Like I imagine myself as a professor. I imagine myself starting a lab and being the director of a lab. And I journal, I write things that I kind of like, um, it's, it's kind of like the fake it till you make it idea but you know you just you kind of speak to yourself about what you want to see and then the other thing is find mentors and find inspiration i think that's why star trek really star trek voyager really got me through grad school i feel like i watched it so much and part of it was the inspiration i feel like i got from it in terms of i absolutely love the theme song and i feel like it kind of described what was happening for me in terms of, you know, opening like this new path, not just for myself, but for many other people. And also the diverse characters and all of that stuff. I just felt like it was something that, that brought a lot of inspiration and motivation for me. So yeah, that's why I, I would recommend uh, finding inspiration. And that might not be where you are currently, but you know, you can find it somewhere. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Uh, you know, finding inspiration, finding those imagined places to strive towards. Um, often that's that's what science fiction does for a lot of people. Um, and very similar to you, um, you know, I found a lot of inspiration in Star Trek Voyager. I didn't watch it I didn't come to it during grad school, um, but I was very young, so it wasn't quite I wasn't quite cognizant of it. But I think that it really had a really big impact on me to see Harry Kim on the bridge of Voyager, you know, working uh, with a diverse group of colleagues and solving technical problems. Just seeing that made sure that there was a space in my mind to even imagine myself being in the space sciences. Because when I was eight years old, like I couldn't name a single 
person of East Asian descent in the space sciences. There's not like famous Asian, you know, space scientists out there that I could point to and be like, I would like to be like them. Uh, but seeing Harry Kim on the bridge really made it possible for me to imagine myself in that reality. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to ask each of you as a scientist and also just as a human being, how have you felt seen in Star Trek? Or alternatively, um, you can answer the question, how can Star Trek do better to be more inclusive of something that you identify with? Well, I'll just start screaming Culver and Stamets at the top of my lungs, I guess. It sort of shocked me how much seeing out gay characters played by gay actors in Star Trek affected me. It I mean, there's no lack of fan theories and queer-coded characters throughout Star Trek, complaint to Garrick and all sorts of things. But it's such a powerful experience to see yourself actually represented on screen for something that, I mean, most of us, many of us in this room grew up watching. And I am forever grateful that they have taken that step. Star Trek is still not perfect in, in any regard to representation, but it's clear that they're making strides. It's it's really powerful to see characters like uh, Adira and Grey in season three of Discovery. And I hope that that continues and that, that to, to make Star Trek a home for everyone who could want it to be their home. Just like how we were talking about science, wanting to make it so that anyone who wanted to do science can do science and feel like they're part of a community. Absolutely. It's interesting because because I came to Star Trek as an adult uh, and had really fully formed my identity. Uh, what I find really interesting is getting to do like a fresh watch of this show that started 50 years ago, but was progressive for its time. But now when you look back and it's like, oh, okay, like that was great that you tried to do that, but oh, you missed a few, wa- here are the ways you missed. And then actually getting to watch it progress, like it's amazing the show has tried so hard to be so inclusive all of its time. And it's like that running undercurrent of, you know, inclusion and diversity and stuff and always trying to to be ahead of its time in that, you know, the kiss and everything. So for me, it's been a real interesting journey and like here's what progressive attitudes looked like through the decades and like the nice contrast now and then like the newer versions that have the openly out characters and stuff. And it's like just marvellous. It's just, you know, so lovely to have this show that has always been trying to be this thing. It's always had this ideal, right? Yes. Couldn't have said it better. What I found so impactful about Star Trek throughout the years, you know, having seen it as a kid, watching it as an adult now, is just, it's not so much the diversity itself, but just the fact that it's normalized. It's barely even acknowledged in the sense of, of course, there's a team of Black people, white people, Asians, aliens, you know, <laughs> like, you know, all sorts. And they're all, you know, part of a team. They're all contributing ideas. They're all, you know, of value to that team. And everyone sees that, you know, there, there's mutual respect there. And so I think, you know, that to me is what, as a society, I hope we aspire, you know, I aspire that <laughs> I hope we reach, you know, just not even having these conversations, right? Because these teams should be inherently diverse and these opinions should be inherently valued. And uh, so it's really nice to see that depicted on screen without even a second thought. Yes. Uh, You know, some of my favorite scenes in Star Trek involve people tapping into their intersectional diversity 
to come together and solve a difficult problem. This is one reason why I love Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, you know, the one with the whales, where the crew uses their various skill sets and backgrounds to navigate 1980s San Francisco to figure out how to bring two humpback whales into the future. And this whole Endeavor would not have worked if Uhura couldn't modify an audio signal to account for the density of water, or Spock didn't know how to mind meld with a whale, or Sulu couldn't figure out how to fly a helicopter, or Scotty didn't know the formula for transparent aluminum. And I was wondering, you know, what are some other instances of teamwork and diversity that we'd like to highlight that really speaks to you about, you know, how it's awesome that Star Trek shows a future that is inclusive to people of all different backgrounds working together? When you posed this question, one thing came to mind, and it's probably because I had it on those VHS tapes, and that was the second episode of Voyager, Parallax, so right after they get stranded. They get stuck in like a black hole, basically, and the entire episode is Janeway and Bolana butting heads, but then coming together to like solve a scientific problem. And that episode, I love it for so many reasons, and that ability for people with different backgrounds to recognize their mutual expertise and to come together to solve a problem, I think is just amazing and a great example of, of that style of solving problems in a in, in sort of an equitable and diverse way. And it's also this gets to a point that Miriam said earlier about the importance of like finding mentors. Part of Voyager is is Janeway basically mentoring all these people on the ship into, <laughs> into being better people and realizing the greatness within each of them, including Bolana. Bolana goes through this arc throughout the entire show. So that's the example that I would jump to. Yeah, why wasn't Janeway my PhD advisor? <laughs> uh, so I wanted to make sure that we all got a chance to highlight some ongoing efforts to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion in STEM. What are some of those ongoing projects or activities that you think that people should know about? <laughs> I think Jesse's pointing at me. <laughs> I'll start <laughs> virtually pointing. Um, so uh, there was a, pr a program that I, I started, um, conceived of an idea about a year ago. Um, I'd say at the you know height of Black Lives Matter protests. I'd say you know in general, right? There's been quite a reckoning, you know, in many different communities about what diversity, equity, and inclusion and accessibility means in our respective communities. Planetary science and astronomy being those. And so um, you know, thinking about the pandemic, but additionally. DEIA, fewer opportunities for underrepresented, underserved communities to, you know, have access to networks um, by virtue of the pandemic, but also just by virtue of them being part of underserved and underrepresented communities. And so Jesse is part of this program as well, will help to organize uh, what we've called the Exoplanet Explorer Science Series. And so this is sponsored by the uh, NASA um, Exoplanet Exploration Program and uh, serves in my role as an Exoplanet Program Analysis Group EC member. I know I'm throwing in a lot of terms, but just, you know, NASA Exoplanets Program. And so the basic idea of this Exo Explorers Program, as we've called it, is to um, recruit a group of 10 early career scientists, postdocs, graduate students from underserved, underrepresented communities and promotes primarily their science. Exoplanet science is a diverse set of, um, you know, different disciplines and, and research. And so giving them the opportunity to speak on their science, but also form a network amongst themselves, which again, has been very hard to do um, in the pandemic, right, when we're all by ourselves. So I think, you know, we just finished our, our first year of this pilot program, um, and I think it's been, you know, very successful. Uh, and so really excited to see um, how that program can grow and um, the, you know, the 
cohort members, as we've called them, have brought really good ideas to the table and are really enthused, you know, not only about their science, but also affecting change in the community. And so I'm uh, really excited to see where, you know, future cohorts go and, and just um, seeing the program flourish in, in new ways that even that even I can't expect, because, you know, uh, as we've said, it's um, it's all about diversity of thought and diversity of teams. And so, you know, there are things that I or Jesse, you know, may not have thought of that they can, you know, bring to the table and really make help um, help make the program better. Thank you so much, Tiffany and Jesse, for your work on that new endeavor. It's really, really important for gaining more traction for uh, a diverse, uh, diverse group of people working in the exoplanets field. Yeah, I want to add that it's just something everyone can do is really uh, check your biases. You know, what are your biases and what are common biases and push back on those things and you know because we're all conditioned to think a certain way about what a scientist looks like what an explorer looks like and we really need to fight against those things as a society and so the more people that can do that the more people who are not the typical scientists can be encouraged to consider that as their career path Absolutely. Yes. It will all take a lot of personal work on all of our behalves to um, overcome a lot of these initial biases, uh, implicit biases that we all have. Um, so thank you for that reminder, Miriam. You know, time is running short. So unfortunately, I don't think we'll be able to take any questions from the audience. So I apologize to everybody who has been typing your questions into the comments. But hopefully, um, we will get some ways and avenues to connect with and uh, hear about the awesome work in science and efforts to increase diversity in STEM from all of our panelists tonight. And you can connect with them over the internet. So moving into our final questions of the night, how can people follow your amazing work on the internet? Maybe we'll start with James. Yeah, um, the easiest way to find me is uh, on Twitter. Um, my handle is jtuttlekeen, where you can come and I'll talk about all sorts of random science and art and share bits of my, my life as a scientist. All right. Thanks, James. Jesse, what about you? Where can people find you on the internet? Yes. Also on Twitter, my handle is at Aussie Astronomer without the E in Aussie. Um, if, so if you have any questions that we didn't get to today about the exoplanets that we found or about the fictional worlds in Star Trek, please shoot them at me on Twitter and I'll answer them later uh, and come find me there. I'm looking forward to hearing your questions. Fantastic. Miriam, where can people find your work on the internet? I am not on Twitter, but I have a webpage that's poorly updated. My webpage is www.miriamtellis.wordpress.com. I try to update it once a year. But um, if you want to get in touch with me, you can find my email address and contact info on that webpage. All Would right. love to hear from you if you have questions. Fantastic. And Tiffany. Yeah, similar to Miriam, I do not have a, a Twitter handle, so you can't find me there. But I do have a webpage if you search for you know my first and last name. There aren't too many Tiffany Katarias out there. So you can find my email address and I'm happy to chat all sorts of science, exoplanet science with, with any of you. Excellent. And I'm Mike Wai on Twitter. That's M-I-Q-U-A-I. -I. And I have just one last question that I really, really want to squeeze in here, which is something that I've been asking all of my guests on Strange New Worlds, uh, because we've just gone through a very horrendous past year and a half. And I just want to get one thing that gives you hope about the future? One thing related to Star Trek or not, um, maybe we'll go around and begin again with James. 
one thing that we've got brand new Star Trek out in like a couple of weeks or in months. I am excited for that. <laughs> yes, I can't wait for Lower Deck season two. Let's hop over to Tiffany. My first thought was vaccines. That's what I'm hopeful for the future. <laughs> yes, excellent. Miriam. Oh my gosh, I, I'm hopeful because of the more and more people care about DIA and there's a big push for it in planetary science. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing more groups of people like us just in my department, everywhere I go and conferences and everything. So that's going to be awesome. Yes. And Jesse. I'm hopeful because of all of the people who are listening today who chose to spend their Sunday evening talking about diversity in science. That's amazing. Thank you all for coming. Yes, excellent. Thank you all panelists for being here tonight. Thank you to the audience. Thank you to Women at Warp. This concludes the first ever live episode of Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. If you've enjoyed today's panel, you can find Strange New Worlds wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you out there. Bye, everyone. Let me tell you, it was such a thrill to be a part of the podcasting lineup at the Idic Podcast Festival. If you want to revisit any of the other sessions from the Idic Podcast Festival, just tap on the link in the show notes to watch all of the recordings on YouTube. And if you haven't done so already, go and subscribe to Woman at Warp, they produce a phenomenal show like no other in the podcasting sphere. Thanks again to all of my guests for such a genuinely insightful and uplifting discussion of diversity in science and Star Trek. It meant the world to me that each and every one of them agreed to join me and made this virtual gathering as amazing as it was. You know, working towards a more inclusive future is a never-ending project, one that I think we must all approach with humility and compassion. I am always learning about new ways to be a better advocate for underrepresented groups, and I hope that you not only had as much fun as I did listening to our panelists' words, but that you also feel as inspired as I do to work towards that Star Trek future. I think of all the heartfelt stories told and words of wisdom offered that hour, Jesse Christensen saying that we shouldn't just have diverse teams because it makes science better. We should care about diversity because no one should be shut out of science was my favorite. Yes, 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 and yes, diversity makes us better. But inclusion is not a means to an end. Inclusion is a fundamental right and end in itself. And what Jesse said applies not just to science, but to every domain of life. No one should be barred from anything just because of simply being who they are. So your homework is to figure out one new thing that you can do to increase diversity, equity, inclusion, and or accessibility in your life. 
In other words, can you do something that increases a sense of belonging for someone else on this little rock that we call Earth? Until next time, see you out there.